You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, episode 84. Whether you are an HR manager of a global company seeking to transfer key employees to Canada, a foreign student searching for ways to remain permanently, or a Canadian citizen wishing to sponsor a spouse living abroad, the Canadian immigration process can be one of the most complex and frustrating things you will ever have to experience. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there and welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your, Mar- I'm your host, Mark Holthy, coming to you from the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. Well, it's nice to be back behind the mic for another podcast episode. And this episode, I've been looking forward to for a long time. Now, I won't tell you the fact that we actually tried once before and we had audio issues. Heaven forbid, it's been the bane of my existence the last probably two to three weeks. My live streams haven't been working well. The podcast hasn't been uh, recording very well, but I think we finally have it figured out. So today, this episode, usually in the past, I've always brought on immigration lawyers from across the country to extol their wisdom and knowledge. And, you know, I pick those lawyers that are really doing it right and are giving back to their communities and are practicing at the top of their game. On occasion, I also bring on non-lawyers, and that's the occasion today. And uh, the thing that's driven all of this, I guess to some extent, is, um, you know, as my role as the, the national chair of the Canadian Bar Association, we have opportunities to, to liaise and discuss and, and, and consult with the government on what the future holds. And in the midst of this pandemic we're experiencing, one of the questions is, what do we do with immigration? And so we've got a country that really could use some investment and and good good people coming in to uh, to bring um, you know to bring value to to our economy and to help us in our recovery plan. And so with our Canadian Bar Association, we have lots of opportunities to discuss these things. And over the last while, I've been involved with a number of different organizations, including the Conference Board of Canada, which has been proposing some alternatives to the investor programs. And we're going to get a little bit more into those things, but I've invited a special guest, Phil Cohen, who um, who joins me today from from Ontario. And uh, welcome, Phil. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Very excited to be here. Excellent. So Phil is a real, he brings a real unique background to the discussion today, which is what can we do as a country to help encourage more investment in our country in a world where our current government really doesn't like pure investment for immigration purposes? And so what do we do? We look to other countries. What are they doing? One of them is the U.S. And the U.S. has a program called the EB-5 program, which Phil is going to explain a little bit more to, uh, to us about that because he's had a lot of experience working within it. And how an EB-5 program that's made for Canada may be one of the solutions that the government really needs to look at. So, Phil, you, uh, I know you've got a, a, just a wealth of experience and background on this topic. And um, 
I guess before I get into kind of introducing you, although I think most people, if you go to the the, um, the show notes for the podcast, you'll be able to read about uh, Phil and his company, um, Strategic Elements, that's been operating within U.S. immigration, providing advice to lawyers down there uh, with respect to the EB-5 program. And, you know, he's been involved in some massive projects that have generated over well, $3 billion in capital for immigrant investment. And uh, he's written books, you know, the, um, the EB-5 Definitive Guide. So he's the, he's the guru. He's the guy. But, but Phil, what's up with this EB-5 program? What is it? Before I answer that, Mark, first, I appreciate that you set me up as the person who has all the answers. So uh, <laughs> I hope everyone's listening carefully. Thank you for that. Yeah, no pressure, uh, my friend. No pressure. <laughs> well, so the EB-5 program, it, it's an American immigration program, as you pointed out. There are complexities to it, but in short, it allows both Americans and foreign nationals to essentially set up companies that can raise money from immigrant investors. These investors get a green card so long as the business achieves certain requirements, such as the investor has to invest a minimum amount, and that's currently at 900,000 or 1.8 million, and that depends on whether it's in an, in an economically uh, uh, depressed, uh, or sorry, low, low employment geographical area. And the business must create 10 jobs for each EB-5 investor it takes on. So the kinds of businesses we often see are hotels, assisted living facilities, schools, restaurants, large construction projects. The reason a company would use a program like that to raise capital over traditional avenues is that basically the cost of capital ends up being lower. And that means that of course the investor gets lower returns, but the real return for them is the immigration benefit or in this case, the green card. Okay, so most people that I talk to when we're discussing anything about immigration for investment, you know, a program like this, that's fine. The invest, you know, the people that are actually building these projects are going to benefit from, you know, from the investment dollars to carry them forward. But what's the benefit to the broader American society? Let's start from that point. Like, why does the U.S. immigration authorities actually see this as a, a good program? And um, how do they spin it to the American public? Well, uh, so I pointed out that the, the projects have to bring on 10 new, create 10 new jobs for every investor they bring on. So obviously the employment is a key point. And if you think about it at a million dollars per investor, uh, 10 jobs, that's, uh, you know, it doesn't go so far. Uh, so you really have to create businesses that that work. Um, incidentally, probably, probably in the context of our current economic environment, it's worth pointing out that indirect jobs such as uh, sorry, indirect jobs that are calculated by economists can actually be counted as part of the job creation. So um, the, the investment would be half of what it would otherwise be if the project is located in a low employment area. So it steers money to where jobs are most needed. Uh, what we see most in the US is that the projects under the program end up being in those economic areas to be competitive because the investors don't want to put invest in put their money into lower return uh, investments if they don't have to. So if Canada built a similar program, it could adjust it to suit its own specific targets using similar incentive mechanisms. And lastly, it generates it stimulates investment into the economy. Based on an average of about 3,000 investors annually, it would bring in $3 billion of investment at the lowest investment level. All right. Okay, that makes sense to me. I can, I can get behind that, especially when you say that some of the examples of businesses that often see this type of investment 
are those that are building assisted living facilities or schools. Like it's pretty hard for the general population to say, well, hey, we don't want those investors to get immigration status in Canada when their dollars went directly to building assisted living facilities with our aging population and new schools that are that are constantly under, you know, uh, under pressure and, and uh, in many communities to build them. And there isn't always the tax dollar, especially in this world of, of uh, this pandemic that we've been experiencing. So that makes sense. And, um, you know, this idea, Phil, is, is like I mentioned before, has been toyed with by, um, you know, by a number of, of different uh, think tanks, one of them being the Conference Board of Canada and, the, and their National Immigration Centre. And over the last last year, I attended, um, uh, attended a meeting where they released some of the results of their evaluations of the immigration investor and entrepreneur programs. And, and they actually keyed in on this EB-5 program as a possible solution for the government. And in Canada, you know, in the past, the, you know, the, the, the immigrant investor programs did get a little bit of a bad rap. So maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about the differences between, you know, uh, this EB-5 program, or at least what it could look like in Canada, and the old federal immigration investor programs that really were poo-pooed and, and really got a bad rap. So what, what would you say is the differences? Sure. The two programs are really apples and oranges. Uh, sp- talking specifically, as you point out, to the about the old federal investor program, not necessarily the provincial uh, or the various other business immigration programs. But if you look at them side by side, the Canadian federal investor program was really a black box as far as the public is concerned. Nobody really knew much about where the money went, and there was no real defined public benefit. Uh, from a political perspective, I think it's odd that it lasted as long as it did. It seems like it could have been much more of a lightning rod for criticism from both the public and political leaders. Uh, one thing about the old program that I don't think most Canadians realize is that the big banks turned it quite literally into a visa for sale program. <clears throat> they would loan the money to the immigrant investors for a fixed fee up front. And I may be wrong about the exact mechanics here, but I believe that the banks didn't even require collateral from the investor because the investment was guaranteed by the Canadian government. So it was basically pay us a fixed fee. Welcome to Canada. That makes, (laughs) yeah, you're right. And as I look back at it too, at every conference I attended, you know, those, those banks were, (laughs) were there pushing the program. And, you know, they, I even remember in my early days that they would even help lawyers who didn't really know the process uh, to, to fill out the forms and to assist them. And so there was a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of uh, money put into promoting these. So clearly, yeah, you're right. I think there was a lot of money that was, uh, that was on the table for the banks and, and um, all of them that supported this type of, uh, of an investment program. So, okay. So in terms of launching a program like this in Canada, why do you think it would be a benefit to the country overall? Well, really, the benefits, I think, are similar to what I outlined for the U.S., but the program could be really structured to meet many different economic needs. And that's the beauty of this whole concept and why I think it really deserves some consideration. Let's dive a bit deeper. We might consider it in the context of where we stand, consider uh, where we stand currently as a country. So, for example, the PM recently announced, Prime Minister recently announced a large stimulus package at a time when the Bank of Canada's balance sheet is already at 27% of gross domestic product or GDP. To quote from a recent Globe and Mail article, 
By the end of this year, federal net debt will likely increase to 55% of GDP compared with 31% last year. That would be the largest single year change in our history. Uh, additionally, the, the tax base is drying up in the sense that a large and growing number of jobs have been lost. Businesses are starting to close down as a result of the pandemic and the economy is being hollowed out and much of that is not expected to come back anytime soon, even with a vaccine. So in my opinion, I'm not an economist, but increasing taxes is not really an option. At best, it just transfers the problem to the future. So I say, my view, the government has a moral imperative to find new and creative ways to bring capital into our economy. Short of infrastructure spending, which is industry specific and comes out of taxpayers' pockets anyway, what choices are there? I say an EB-5-like program could bring us the same advantages that the US is enjoying, such as, as I said, increasing overall foreign direct investment. And that's, that's stimulus money. That's not money that's sitting in the bank or being paid out in bonuses like other past so-called stimulus programs. That's money that's being put to work to better our economy and create jobs in a very visible way. Um, the program can support or even save struggling businesses. Uh, just by way of example, the US EB-5 program has a so-called troubled business provision that allows investments being made into businesses that are facing failure to count jobs that are being saved toward the requisite job creation, which is a beautiful thing, especially if you think about what's happening right now, that makes perfect sense. Uh, sorry, Mark, I, I'm rambling a bit, but I got I got a few more points to make. No, no, no. This, um, is, this is all good. Absolutely. Please continue. Thank you. Uh, and this is that's another example of how the program can be tweaked to serve what we need to have happen. There are so many possibilities, really, like creating loans for areas where loans are hard to come by, supporting the federal government's planned infrastructure development plan and so on. And all of these are things that we need now more than at any time that I think most of us can recall. And here's the kicker, all without a penny being paid out of taxpayers' pockets. Remember too, that even though the investors are foreign nationals, if we adopted a similar model to EB-5, Canadians can be the owners of the businesses that are being created and invested in. And one last point, it's also worth mentioning that there's a whole industry built up around the program in the US, including lawyers, economists, business experts, funds administrators, and service providers like my company. All of that's great for the country. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned earlier just about the benefits and how there's those directly involved in the project. And then there's all the ancillary benefits that spin out to all the other service providers, you know, um, in, uh, companies that are providing like everything from the, uh, you know, everything involved in the, the infrastructure related to that project, materials, you know, labor, all those kinds of things. And so, but sometimes people do forget that there are professionals as well that benefit from, you know, those same ancillary um, perks, I guess, if you will. There, you know, in, in a time in our country when jobs are at a premium and work is at a premium, these types of things with fresh new investment dollars you know, have large ripple effects that I think people don't always identify. But here's the government, okay? So I've had enough, enough opportunities to talk with them about this. And one of the things they always come back is they say, look, we don't have the expertise to do this. We're do we don't have some specialized team of people to administer a program as complicated and complex as this. So when you're talking about the cost to the taxpayer, 
obviously, to administer a program like this, the government would need to have resources to be able to do this. So can you really say that there's no cost to the taxpayer? Well, that's a good point, but I do stand by my statement based on a few things that I would say. Uh, first, there's a, let's start at the beginning. There's a real demand to emigrate to Canada from many countries who have wealthy citizens. That means that beyond the investment amount itself, the government can charge a significant fee for applying to the program. This is something that has been undervalued in the US even, but consider this. Most EB-5 projects charge their EB-5 investors a so-called administration fee to help them cover their marketing costs. I mean, you've got to find these foreign investors and typically that means a roadshow in lots of countries and so on. But that fee, that's not even the government, but that's the projects that charging the investors money for the privilege of investing in their projects. And that fee can be as much as 60,000 or 70,000 US dollars today. So the government on the other side could easily charge 10,000 or $15,000 under a program like this for each investor application. They could charge even more for certifying larger projects. So by my calculations, that would generate a considerable sum to cover administration of the program, including monitoring for legal and ethical concerns. Um, just a thousand investors annually could generate 10 to $15 million in government fees alone. How many people do you think we could hire with that money? Yeah, that's a good point. And obviously our government believes in a user pay system. And it's interesting, I was just reviewing today, and I actually have it up here on my computer, some recent statistics that the government has produced uh, on basically their fees reporting. And so um, as I was looking through it, and I'm just shifting through it right now, they have not had a great track record of actually having cost recovery within their programs. So for instance, our citizenship program, the revenues generated were about 114,000 and the cost was 100, or sorry, let me correct that, $114 million. And the cost recovery was about 158. So, um, you know, so, so the revenues or the cost of administering, I should say the program was 158 versus 114. Um, the only one that actually made money, it looks like, or at least kind of broke even was passports for us Canadians. So they're doing a good job of charging enough for that. But our permanent resident program, my goodness, the revenue generated 304000 versus a cost of close to a billion dollars. So, wow. so you can see how if you create a system where you're actually, you know, <laughs> you've got your, you've got your, your actuarial uh, statistics set properly so you know how much it's going to cost and the cost recovery fees are set at a level that does um, give you the ability to hire individuals that have um, the expertise needed. Well, it's a user pay system. So why in the world couldn't you do it? And I know they, they like to go out and outsource to private entities and that comes with its all, you know, a whole host of other issues with it. But, but generally speaking, I, I agree like a user pay system where they are paying 10 to $15,000 as a processing fee you get enough people going through that, and that it can afford the salary of some some really good people that uh, that know the craft and and can assess it. So I yeah I have to agree that's not as bar- much of a barrier as you would think. But Phil, we're talking about Canada here, and where we have a country that's driven by um, well let's just say immigration policy is driven by public shaming in the media. You know it all comes down to votes. And so if you're talking about government, you're talking about a politicians here and they, their buy-in has to be there to launch such a, such a program like this. 
you know, what kind of political benefit should should they be thinking about when they're trying to promote a, a program like this? Good question. I, you know, I have to say, I was warned before I came on your show that uh, you asked the tough questions and now you're living up to that. The, but let's start with the obvious. The prime minister announced on September 23rd, uh, that's, that's about a month ba- back from today when we're recording this, a plan to create 1 million jobs. So that's a huge challenge, certainly admirable, but it's a huge challenge. So the fit there is self-evident. Uh, taxpayers, I think, would appreciate something like this because it demonstrates an ability to think creatively, to develop win-win solutions, to fix what are really big problems at a time when spending is running rampant and taxpayers are getting scared about the future cost of that. It's also a balance against other immigration policies, which are sometimes perceived as an economic drag by taxpayers. To your point, you just pointed out some of the costs of some of these other programs. But you know, taking it a step further, while I think many can appreciate Canada's altruistic intentions in its refugee, asylum, and other humanitarian-oriented immigration policies, I think we can also appreciate an ability to offset that with some productive uh, investment from prospective immigrants too. A program like this throws a bone also to more conservative-minded people. Effectively, it presents a balance against the perception of spending too much. It kind of ties into my earlier point. And as I mentioned before, it can be made to align with other political objectives. For example, think low-income housing, saving businesses affected by COVID-19, and of course, generally, jobs, jobs, jobs. It's worth noting, just one last point, that the program crosses partisan lines in the U.S., which I think says a lot in today's uh, political environment in the U.S. definitely. It's been around since the late 90s. It has certainly been called out along the way for some problems, but it's never been canceled. Huh, interesting. Okay, so all of those, you know, those things you bring forward, they make sense. I, I agree. And I must admit to the listeners, I am on side with this. It makes sense. But my goodness, there, there are always these generalized criticisms that are always there. And one of them is that it's effectively citizenship for sale. So how do you respond to that when people say, how is this fair? Someone, just because they've got money, they can buy their way into Canada. Well, one can certainly make that argument. I mean, to an extent, maybe it is. But Canada has done far worse in the past, uh, as we just discussed with the federal investor program and the way the government allowed it to be exploited. I would argue that the question is not so much about citizenship for sale as it is about how can Canada develop an innovative way to leverage just a small small corner of its immigration program to stimulate investment from just a few immigrants, relatively speaking, to achieve a real socioeconomic benefit? In a way, <clears throat> excuse me, in a way we do this kind of thing already with various entrepreneur and business-related immigration programs at federal and provincial levels. So it's, it's nothing new, but here's the thing, <clears throat> excuse me, The main difference is those other programs mostly require the immigrant investor to be hands-on in the business. So I see some value in that, but really who cares who runs the business as long as a new business and new jobs are being created as a result of an immigrant's uh, effort or investment. And I would go, go even further. I note in my line of work, I've seen time and again, and maybe you have too, People who come to Canada and set up a business, but don't really want to do that. It's not really what they their dream is. They do it because it's a ticket into the country. 
in those cases, we're motivating people to start what end up being, in many times, poorly run businesses or businesses that won't last because their hearts aren't in it. With a program like this, we can give them a choice. On one side, start a business if that's what you want, or invest in a qualifying business and let somebody else do it, someone who really wants to do it. In my opinion, we'll see much better success rates with much better long-term economic impacts. So from that perspective, I'd hold an EB-5 type of program up against any other kind of immig business immigration program. You're right. And, you know, I keep saying you're right. <laughs> but, but when I look back historically, especially our immigrant and entrepreneur programs, there was a front end and a back end requirement to maintain that PR. <clears throat> so unlike the investor program where you just invested and that was it, the entrepreneur programs generally were based on the fact that you did prove that you'd started started a business, that you ran it, that you employed Canadians. And if uh, you couldn't demonstrate that, then you had the, the possibility of losing your permanent residence. And you know as well as I do how volatile businesses are, even in the best of circumstances, let alone in the midst of, you know, recovering from a pandemic. So, and then you have someone, and obviously running your own business, I think about it right now, starting up my own business, how hard it is, even when you're super passionate about it and you want it to succeed and you're completely invested, but people who are just being forced are just going to go through the motions. You know, even this concept of hiring Canadians for positions, you know, they're going to go through the bare minimum that they need to do to get through and more likely than not, and I shouldn't overgeneralize because this, this is somewhat anecdotal, but more, more often than not, I'd love to see the statistics on the various provincial nominee programs that still push these entrepreneur options, how many of those businesses actually exist when they're fully landed, officially made a permanent resident, and how many Canadians they're still employing? Whereas you make some super, super valuable points about letting Canadians continue to run, or permanent residents, to run the businesses with the foreign investment, and uh, the foreign investors can do what they do best, which is turn over the money, right? And let those that know the, the industry, that, that know, um, you know how to run businesses successfully in Canada, let them take the lead. So, it, so all of those things make you know, a lot of sense. Once again, I find myself agreeing with you. But in fairness to our listeners, I was fully on board before I actually invited Phil in. So I can stop <laughs> pretending like I'm a, I'm a devil's advocate. But maybe that's what I am. So let's throw another piece in here just for our viewers because I know people who are listening or some of them have preconceived ideas about these things, right? So wouldn't others say that this kind of immigration shuts out disadvantaged people um, and it's only available for the rich? You, well, sure, maybe, but you know, when you need money, rich is not a dirty word. Uh, maybe we're talking about a small slice of the total number of immigrants with an objective in mind that benefits the whole country. A program like this would not shut down other types of, uh, other types of immigration available to a broader spectrum of, of applicants. So let's look at the broader picture for reference more than 30,000 refugees were admitted to Canada in 2019. So I say, what's wrong with encouraging investment and job creation in exchange for something that's really valuable and offsetting some of that cost to the taxpayer with some real benefits? Everybody wins, in my opinion. Okay, that makes sense. Well, what about all this fraud that we're hearing about in the program down in the States? 
Well, it certainly happened, uh, it, but I, it's not as rampant as has been portrayed in the media. In my view, it's kind of a fun expose type of story. So the media picks it up every once in a while. But really, if you look at the number of fraud cases in the EB-5 program versus in the business world at large, you wouldn't see a higher incidence. Uh, there's a long period of time, something like 10 years, where every once in a while an EB-5 fraud story would pop up in the mainstream media, and they would continually cite the exact same fraud story. So if it was so rampant, you'd think there'd be more or better examples. Uh, Canada could learn a lot from the changes that have been made in the U.S. program to make it harder to defraud people and to implement more checks and balances. So I think there's, the, there's even more that can be done looking forward. Okay, so... We've talked a lot about the value of doing this and, and how it could make sense for Canada, but why is now the right time for a program like this? Well, my opinion is there couldn't be a more opportune time if we look at it. Uh, we have the pandemic wreaking havoc on our economy as we speak. Some economists are even saying we're now in a depression, so that's a long road ahead to recovery. Uh, one has to look beyond what's happening in the stock market. We have major job losses Businesses are closing daily, some barely hanging on, particularly, particularly in retail, restaurants, hospitality. Those are prime areas all for EB-5 currently. Uh, and another Globe and Mail article pointed out that based on Canada's experience with past recessions, we could expect the deficit to continue rising for the next three to five years. So in terms of potential benefit for the program, the timing there could also, sorry, the potential demand, I mean, for the program. The, the timing there could also not be any better. There's a chill on U.S. immigration, as we know, making Canada an alternative in even higher demand. And the U.S. program, uh, as it stands, has an excessively long wait time, up to 10 years or more in some cases. Okay, so I think as is most of the programs we have in Canada, we've taken a look at what other countries are doing We've taken the best things and best aspects of those programs and then made them our own. And, you know, when obviously with all the programs in the U.S., I remember speaking with some of my um, H-1B clients who were working in the U.S. And, you know, whether they're from India or wherever, you know, most of them would be dead by the time they were actually able to get their permanent residence because of, you know, the quotas and, and the number of spots and number of people competing for them. So it doesn't surprise me that even with EB-5, the processing times are increasing. So when you have a program that's lean and mean and efficient, like our express entry program is for permanent residents, something that's more similar that has, you know, more realistic turnarounds for actually obtaining permanent residence for investors, that makes a lot of sense. And so you and I, uh, Phil, we could talk till the cows come home, as we say out here in Alberta. But the reality is we don't make these decisions. It's the government. So, if I was to pull on, well, let's say, let's say, uh, pre, you know, our, our dear Prime Minister Trudeau is, is listening to this. Um, what would you tell him is the best place to start? You know, where, where, would you, where would you say, hey, okay, let's seriously start looking into this. This is how you do it. What, what advice would you give them? Well, bearing in mind, I'm in the business planning business, so I would take a pretty methodical approach. I'd start by closely assessing the needs of the country, you know, you know, in a broader perspective, and then consider different ways of steering the program to meet those needs in a way that would let private business do the heavy lifting. And I think that's really the important point to, to or one of the important points to realize here is that this program is really structured to achieve 
things that the country needs, but the private industry is doing the heavy lifting and, and making it happen. And, and so the, the key is to motivate them to, in the right way. I would also look at the American program and closely assess how it could be modified and improved for Canada. I, I'd wanna look at the checks and balances that can be put in place to ensure that people are not cheated and that the money goes where it's supposed to go. Uh, I would look at even complaints about the EB-5 program and see what the, both the advocates and the detractors are saying in terms of how to affect meaningful change that benefits all stakeholders, and that means all of us. Uh, of course, specific political objectives need to be understood and worked in however possible. And the program would also require a czar, maybe you, Mark, <laughs> someone in charge of continually adjusting strategic objectives in line with what the country needs most, tightening up the loopholes that will inevitably emerge. Okay, well, that uh, everything leading up to you saying that I would be the czar, I agree 100% <laughs> with. And uh, I think you make a really good case, Phil, a really good case. And I think this message in this podcast episode, I'm going to promote it everywhere I can, everywhere I can, because I think this is how change occurs. And in, in light of our, our current economic recession, um, now may just be the right time to consider this type of, uh, of a program. And um, in my mind, there's going to be negatives to anything that you propose, like any new programs that relate to investment for permanent residence or citizenship will definitely have their, their detractors. And um, there's going to be negatives with it. But the positives and especially how these things can result directly in the creation of like, you, you know, you listed a bunch of things, hotels, restaurants, large construction projects, which create jobs and everything like that. But when I look at communities that normally maybe they, they desperately need a school, they maybe they don't have enough kids attending right now, but they expect it to grow or even smaller communities where schools are built or, you know, or assisted living facilities are built in places that normally wouldn't get built. It's going to create an incentive for people to move there. So there's a whole bunch of you know, spinoffs, as we discussed, that that could flow from programs like this. And yeah, there's fraud and everything. So to use that as a reason for not doing, I think is, is a stupid, uh, it's a stupid position to take. Um, you know, but you put those checks and balances in place. You make sure you've got the right people that are doing it. I think it makes perfect sense. Um, any last parting comments, Phil, before we say goodbye today? Uh well, the, the last thing I would really bring up is just that, you know, the, a program like this, to your point, needs to be considered holistically, right? Really, it's, it, there'll always be bumps in the road, as you point out, there'll always be criticisms and, and things to, to, uh, to point out that are uh, downsides. But on the upside, really, the benefit that this country can gain from something like this is better than anything I could think of when you consider the uh, in the return on the investment. Let's call it. Yeah, that makes sense. Makes make a lot of sense. All right, Phil. Thank you so much for joining us today. So, if uh, if if the media, the news media, or government wants to reach out to someone who's got some insight on these topics, or you know anyone really would like to reach out to you to get more information, um, what's the best way for them to contact you? Well, my email address is pcohen at strategicelementconsulting.com. And my number is 1-888-834-5565. Uh, 
extension one. And uh, yeah, we've been involved in the immigration business for quite some time and love to uh, love to participate in helping to build something like this for Canada. That would be great. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll see where this goes. Thanks so much, Phil. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate being on your show. All right. So I knew that you guys were going to like this one. And this was full of a lot of very, very meaty topics. And uh, the reality is this type of a program, for sure, it has its positives and it has its negatives. But in the current pandemic that we're in and, and in the future uh, that, that is going to be us recovering from this pandemic, this type of immigrant investor program really makes sense to me. And I hope that as you listen to this, that you, you know, that you, you start to talk about it. And it's really this dialogue, this discussion that can help these types of movements move forward. And I honestly believe that it's pretty hard to argue against the value of doing something like this in a real, true, meaningful way. Not just, oh, I'm a politician or I'm a civil servant and oh, it's just more work and I don't feel like doing something like that. I just want to do it always the way it was, which sometimes you guys know that are listening, that's the reality. Change doesn't happen. Look, look at our courts, right? Look at the way those courts should have modernized years ago, but the pandemic is now forcing them to do it. And this, you know, even within our law firms, you know, for, for many, many, many uh, of us, the pandemic was a real rude awakening and having to adjust and, and to go more virtual. Now, obviously, you guys know that in December, I launched my own virtual firm, which was as much luck as anything else. But we have to be open to new ideas. And I think personally, this EB5 for Canada is a real viable solution. So we'll see where we go from here. But uh, thanks for listening today. And if any of you have great ideas that you'd like to bring forward and uh, you've got some awesome content you'd like to share with the listeners, by all means, reach out to me. Uh, You can just send me an email to mholthy at holthylaw.com. And I'd love to have you join me as a guest on the podcast. Don't forget to... uh, um, to leave a review if you're listening on iTunes or any of the other uh, various channels that the podcast is broadcast to. I love to hear um, people's feedback. And when you leave those reviews, it also makes the podcast a little bit more attractive to those search engines. So check it out. All right. Well, this is the end of episode 84. Thanks for listening. Uh, thanks once again to, to Phil, who was joining me. It was great to have him. And I hope to continue that dialogue with him into the future. Um, but that's it for today, guys. So take care. And, uh, I wish you guys all the best as you navigate this crazy world that we call Canadian immigration. Canada, greatest country in the world. We want to share the richness of your soil.
on the Canadian Immigration Podcast.